Oasis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. My guest today is Steve Kempster, and Steve is at the University of Lancaster, And he is a professor of leadership learning and development, which I think, Steve, is the coolest title of any guest that I've had on the podcast so far. Uh, Thank you so much, Steve, for being with us today. I really appreciate it. When I think of you, I think of three things. I think of laughter. I think of positivity. And then you are a madman when it comes to publishing. I looked at your page at the university, and gosh, since 2002, you have been publishing like a maniac, like a madman. You are just prolific, my friend. So I am so excited. I I have two things that I want to jump into. And I know you have some things too that you want to discuss today as well. I would love to talk about responsible leadership. And I would love to talk about uh, this notion of of leadership for what. Uh, Ron Riggio, I had him on the podcast a few episodes back, and he had mentioned that they'd written, uh, uh, edited a book, you know, What's Wrong with Leadership. And I know that you were a co-author on the final article in that text, uh, leadership for what? And so I'd love to have a conversation about those two things, but laughter, positivity, and just a madman. Do do those three words or those phrases resonate for you? Is that true? Uh, I think there's an essence in that. I think certainly the the laughter and the humor, um, I think too often we take ourselves too seriously, don't we? And uh, I, I, and all the times I've had with you have been spectacularly amusing and funny. Um, and occasionally we've cut to the chase and got some good thoughts out. True. But I think both of those topics that would be great to talk about, certainly the leadership for what and the connection to responsible leadership, are heavy topics. And uh, and as much as the banter and the humour is good, there's a time for the serious, and I, and I think if you want me to, and I wish to, get right into that space. That would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. Okay, so I keep away into that now. Would that be helpful? And just, just take, by the way, it's very kind of you to invite me onto your podcast stream. Uh, the people have gone before me. I've had a listen because I know I had to. I had to scribble down here. What are the key? What have I? What do I listen to? Music-wise, and what have I downloaded? Just those phrases, and, and I'm not sure I even understand some of those phrases. So I've got my answers in readiness when we get to the end. But uh, I was listening to Susan Murphy and uh, Ron's one, and um, that's not to say the others aren't spectacular. It's just that I know Susan and Ron very well, and I wanted to hear what they had to say, and it was fantastic. So thank you for inviting me. Now, responsible leadership. Um, I know Ron plugged his book, so I'll plug a few books if that's good with you, is that uh, I edited a a book with Bridget Carroll called Responsible Leadership, Realism and Romanticism Mm. a couple of years back now. And um, what we wanted to do there was get into the space of seeking to shift leadership attention away from the endless, almost entrails, exploration of of authenticity or traits or transformation all good stuff all very important stuff if any of your listeners are thinking oh my goodness what's this nutter from the north of england saying it's all very important but frankly it's not as important as answering the question leadership for what Mm. and i'll get to that so what we were looking at responsible leadership was taking a lead from uh, thomas mark and nicola pless who wrote a great book in 2006 on called responsible leadership strangely enough and they laid out an argument of trying to shift the focus of attention from leader follower to leader stakeholders so if you imagine scott instead of an endless conversation that's around leader and followers and i've just 
got a paper, two papers now out on in search of followers. And here's the thing, slightly distraction here, Scott. If you go and ask managers in the workplace, point to the leaders you follow, they can't. They do not follow as in a follower in an organizational context. So we keep talking about leader and follower, but frankly, in an organizational world, followers just do not exist. No one aspires to becoming a follower. Distraction, but instead of endlessly thinking about leader-follower, what they said was think about leader-stakeholders. What would that relationship then offer? And you start moving attention towards purpose, towards meaning of work, towards aspects that are deeply significant to people. The reason why, in a sense, we're on this earth is we are proceeding somewhere. We're pursuing something. Or as Aristotle called it, telos. There's a quest. There's a journey. We follow. And so much of our organizational lives are filled up in meaningless work. Now, what we do know is where organizations have strong meaning and a clear palpable sense of purpose, they outperform the market. So with these threads in mind, we said, so responsible leadership, a focus on stakeholders, creating value for stakeholders, shareholders, employees, communities, partners. If you can create value for all those people, would we change the world? And so the book title, Realism and Romanticism, sort of captures that sense and different papers in there were seeing what's possible, what's doable. And then we followed that on, myself and Thomas Mark, with Ken Parry, who you remembered well um, from many years back. And what we did was wrote a book called Good Dividends, Responsible Leadership and Business Purpose. Mm. And you'll be very kind and gracious and let me talk about that further on to this call because it's quite core to my argument. But in a sense, what you're saying is, if we train up lots of people to be really, really good at leading, what is it that they're going to pursue? What are they going to achieve? Why are they doing what they do? And for whom, hence the stakeholder point, for whom are they doing all this? Hmm. And uh, where are they doing it? What's the sense of place and connection to place and purpose? And so that book comes together to say, what happens if we can change the way businesses Think about leadership, think about business, think about value, think about capitalism, and set about pursuing a very, very different journey. Hmm. Well, and talk a little bit more about stakeholders. Talk about that shift of focusing on followers to focusing on stakeholders. How are you thinking about that? Because it's very intriguing. So stakeholder is someone that you have a relationship with. Stakeholder is someone that you would engage with in terms of value generating. So the responsible leadership orientation is about value generating. But most examinations of stakeholders that MBA students get involved with is the minimalizing the, the pain, the hurt, the damage that stakeholders could do on your business. Responsible leadership flips that completely on its head and says, if you were to think about what value stakeholders need or wish or desire what can you bring how can you enhance stakeholder value so the immediate answer is if a one of the stakeholders is shareholders a business would maximize the capitals increase its dividends for the shareholders we get that that's just a normal part of the global life so what would happen if you also sought to maximize value to communities are they conflictual or are they complementary? And so responsible leadership starts putting forward the theoretical view that they're complementary. Empirical data shows you they are highly complementary. The good dividends argument lays out a model about how we could operationalize that complementarity. But here's the thing. Here is the important thing is that even though the data shows us that when you link purpose, meaningful work, adding value to communities, positive social impact, and you see profitability go up, and there's loads of data that shows you that, in the boardroom, they will still not switch the capitalistic model away from neoliberal, self-centered, 
to enlightened self-interest towards that balance of capital, uh, positive social impact with um, value generation. They won't switch. So the issue then becomes how do we make that switch occur? Mm. And that's right at the core of, of the work I've been doing for the last five years. How do we how do we bring that switch about? And and the, sadly, the necessity is to get people into the space of moral outrage. How you're speaking about this, Steve, have you ever heard of the book or read Firms of Endearment? I've heard of it. I've not read it. It's a great it's a great read if you have an opportunity. And that's the closest that and it wasn't through this lens. I didn't read it was more of a a sustainability lens, the people, planet, profit as a simplistic way of saying it. But these were firms, they looked at firms that were more invested in their people, more invested in their communities, more invested in sustainability. This would be a company like Patagonia, for instance, Mm. where they essentially all of their Black Friday in the United States for Thanksgiving, all their Black Friday proceeds go to go to the environment. And so they're giving back to their communities and to the globe. What are some firms, are there some organizations in the UK or abroad that you've come across that are close in modeling some of what you're discussing? Have you come across anyone? Yeah. The the leading one in the UK is Unilever. I don't know how familiar you are with Unilever, huge company, um, global company, but it's registered at the uh, London Stock Exchange. It's in the FTSE 100. And um, so Unilever's model is, in a sense, what we've replicated uh, in our argument around good dividends and responsible leadership. So what Unilever have shown, and Paul Pullman, CEO up till about a year ago, made this point, is that their purpose is to pursue maximization of profit in tandem with positive social impact. They actually, it's, it's on their website. It's explicit as that. And in an argument back to us in a shareholders meeting, where they were saying you're, in a sense, the fiduciary duty, you're not maximizing the service to the shareholders. He argued, if you look at the shareholder return, what we're doing through positive social impact is we have increased the brand values. We've increased our brand equity. Yes. We have, as a consequence, increased shareholder returns, double that of the FTSE 100 over the same 10-year period. So he, he could he could palpably argue that by pursuing positive social impact, having the absolute clarity of purpose, that they were not only increasing shareholder return, they're creating enormous positive social impact. Loads of stats that they provide on their website called the Sustainable Living Planet, quite wonderful to read about their reach. So if you just take this as a point, and I'm going to exaggerate this point a little bit, Scott. Sure, sure. But one of their objectives to which they are seeking to measure, is to reach a billion people. So that's not a million, a billion people. Reach a billion customers to enhance their lives. And they're seeking to measure that. And they're talking about millions of transformed lives in their supply chain that they measure all around the world. Do they have a problem recruiting and retaining people? Their attrition levels are really low. Their recruitment come way over. Graduate entry is astonishingly high. So they're getting the best of the talent and they're holding on to that talent. Yep. And I can give you more and more. So Unilever is a fantastic example where there's the complementarity of positive value with social impact. What's also fun about that that example is they would be the equivalent in some ways of Procter and Gamble in the United States, correct? Yeah. They're not, they're not developing products that you would necessarily associate with some of that work, but that's how they see themselves. That's what their mission is. That's what they're committed to. And by the way, we also make soap and other products that help you know enhance your lives. Exactly. Yeah. So, so a related part, I did a, a, a talk at a conference. It was a very large charity in, our, in, our, in England called uh, Age Concern. And they asked me to talk at the conference because it was inviting a whole range of business partners. 
at this conference. So there was about 70, 80 businesses there that they'd invited on the basis that they wanted those businesses to join with them to support the charity, Age Concern, looking after elderly people and their lifestyles, dementia and all those associated aspects. Before I did the talk, I made this point to them, and they were happy for me to make it out, which was what the businesses there should not do is just think about how we can just gift some money to Age Concern. Thank you for inviting us. Very kind. We feel slightly guilty that we haven't gifted some money. So to to quench our guilt, here's a little bit of cash that we'll send your way. Good luck with it. And I said, that's completely the wrong argument. What I'm going to say to people here today is it's not what you can do for age concern. What you should consider very closely is how by engaging with age concern, can you enhance your business value? Because that way you have medium to long-term, very developmental partnerships of reciprocal value development. So when I went, if I go back to that original argument of responsible leadership being a focus, a shift to leader stakeholders through the maximization of value for stakeholders, what I'm saying is, Don't just philanthropically gift money. Consider who are the most appropriate partners in terms of positive social impact that would maximize business value. Then you have a long-lasting relationship where both parties will do extremely well. Yeah. uh, Anyway, that was the thrust of the talk. Well, and the key word there, I think, is relationship, right? It's a relationship. It's mutually beneficial. It's 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 lasting. It's sustainable. It's not a one-time gift that the two parties then move along their own ways. And in that relationship, you're seeking to understand where value is enhanced by both parties. So you need to get right into uh, what my ops people would call value stream mapping. So we do all these sets of activities to generate value. It's part of our business model. Tell me about your business model. Say to a charity, tell me about your business model. Now, how do we overlap? Where do we overlap? How by engaging with you will it improve our employee dividend? Will they feel that they're fully engaged and we're doing purposeful work? How will it improve our brands and our reputation in the world beyond? How will it enable us to enhance innovation inside our business? Those are the sort of very purposeful conversations that need to happen to create positive social impact. That's appropriate leadership. That's what is beginning to answer that question, leadership for what? Let's talk more about that, Steve. Leadership for what? I'll never forget, we were at an ILA conference, and I was telling you about the collegiate leadership competition. We were, we were just beginning that whole process. And I think we're having a couple of drinks and you, you, you looked at me and you said, but Scott, leadership for what? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I don't know. It's just leadership, Steve. And you said, but for what? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> so when I think of you, I, I also think of those words, leadership for what? So I'm really excited for this, this conversation because you know what? It's four years later. The collegiate leadership competition has done well, but we are actively in the process of having to completely re-engineer that whole experience as we've moved on a more digital online platform from face-to-face in the coming year. And it's been a wonder, your voice was in my head as we were shifting gears and we've now identified, we we think these are going to be three priorities for us. There, it's going to be uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, sustainability, and health and wellness. And in this new format, at least how we're thinking of it now, the students will actually engage in projects, action learning projects, where they, where they actually make a difference in their communities. And so I think we're getting closer to that for what, but you can tell me if, if, if that's the case. Yeah, you're nudging towards it. I remember that conference well. I remember you slapping down your your credit card and ordering, I don't know how many rounds of drinks for us all. It was absolutely spectacular. <laughs> You're a great gent. But seriously, the work you do around uh, deliberate practice is quite fantastic. Mate. Um, it, it is a significant contribution to the development of the field 
and you're well recognized for that and so well done on the leadership for what back to my point even when the boardroom know the profitability and purpose are deeply complementary to each other to enhance the bottom line they still don't do it it then begs the question what it is that you are seeking to do in your leadership positions are you are you if you are only interested in maximizing the shareholder return are you actually maximizing the shareholder return by forsaking the development of purpose so you could be underserving your shareholders by ignoring this purpose question first of all yes second point is that you will get so much more about out from your most expensive asset people where there is meaningful purposeful work so where leadership begins to think in terms of maximizing its assets if that's the role of leadership is maximize its assets then purpose positive social impact is absolutely foursquare on that area because it enhances people's sense of meaning purpose loyalty they want to work for a firm that has high reputation and so on and so forth so you'll get more out of your most expensive assets yes so that's beginning to bode some questions. So I'm still playing within the capitalist frame here, Scott. Yep. In a sense, it's a bit like judo. Use the strength of your opposition against itself. You can use capitalism to change capitalism. You, But the biggest way forward for capitalism to change is leadership. It's the most powerful mechanism on the planet for social change, for good or for ill. There isn't anything more powerful than leadership with the power it wields. And when we talk about power – Think about CEOs of our corporates. So I'm just going to play you with this idea. So the notion of entities, a country is an entity, and there are 195, I think, countries in the world. A corporation is an entity. So see them then both, corporations and countries as entities. In the top 200 entities of the world, over 150 are corporations. Wow. If you then extrapolate that to 2,000 entities or 10,000 entities or a million entities, it is corporations, it is business that dominate that area. So yeah. when we think about, and, and you could get me going on this, but we could be for quite a few hours on the grand challenges that face humanity. Uh, have you heard of the doomsday clock? I have heard of the doomsday clock. Yes, they didn't they just set it forward a little bit further was that accurate they did they set it forward in january and i think we've got something like is it 30 seconds now to Why the end of the world explain it to listeners if you would so the doomsday clock was set at the end of the first, second world war um beginning of the cold war um and it was just it it seeks to gather data around the world geopolitical threats and bound them up in a clock. So if it was uh, five past one, the world is beautifully safe. If it's five to 12, dig a hole in the garden, prepare. <laughs> we are really now, I think it's about 30 seconds away from midnight with the threats around the world. Now those have moved from being geopolitical to grand challenges, climactic. Many listeners will know lots about this, perhaps more than me. But just for instance, half the plant species of the planet are likely to be extinct by 2050. Okay. Most coral reefs will have disappeared by 2050. We've got more people displaced and migrating around the planet now than has ever been at any time human dominance of the world. There's more people in slavery now than has ever been at any time on the planet. We've got aspects of the oceans now that are, the acidification goes back something like 150 million years, never been as high. We've already expect two degrees centigrade climates to increase by. That's going to lead to half a metre rise in seawater mm. most of the cities that of the major cities around the world that front the oceans 
will be asked to move somewhere else. Most of Bangladesh, 160 million population, will have had to be moved. Hmm. By the turn of this century, it's predicted that we're probably looking at three degrees centigrade increase, which means most of the United States, don't know if you know that country, it's that little bit of land that's off the British Isles. <laughs> United States, India, Middle East, China have all been displaced and they're moving. Those populations are moving. Mm. So the predictions are horrendous for humanity. And this is known. It should be known. You know this. The predictions are astonishingly bad. I could go on and on and on. So how do we address that? This comes back to the leadership for what? How do we address that? Do we expect government to have deep pockets and make changes? Probably not. Do they have the will to do such deeply politically damaging processes when they're endlessly being re-elected? No, they don't. Mm -hmm. What they can do is set enabling structures for other entities. It is corporates. It is businesses that actually have the resources, but also they have the discretion. CEOs like uh, Paul Pullman at Unilever can make a decision to increase his shareholder return by improving the lives of one billion people on the planet. Mm. Puts it through a board, argues the case, action takes place. Yes. It is corporates that have the scope to rescue humanity. And it is the leadership desire and hunger to make that happen is, I think, the key question, the key challenge for us. And I think the leadership studies community has been poor in recognizing the role of leadership in trying to tackle this problem. This is incredible, Steve. You have me, you have my mind swirling. So I'm going to see if I can pull a couple things out of that swirl. I loved the, the, the judo, you know, was it using the energy of the other, right? The strength of the opposition against itself. Yes, exactly. And so how do we help corporations thrive in a, in a better way than they are now, to your point? How do we help them thrive and in the process help the planet? This notion of stakeholders as well. I want to go back to stakeholders and, and followers. So how you're thinking about it, followers are just one other or employees are just one other stakeholder in this whole conversation. But we need to not just be focusing on leaders and followers. We need to be focusing on all of these stakeholders. Followers are one of which, one part of the equation or employees or that that end if we look at them as stakeholders we are probably going to treat that relationship very differently than just you know a cog in the wheel or just an employee that we're trying to eke as much out of as possible is that accurate that's right you're absolutely right and there is change about to happen and we need this change and this sounds a very weird thing and you you're beginning to gather i think scott Either begin to gather, I've lost my marbles, or you're beginning to gather, maybe that's a British phrase, losing your marbles, <laughs> or that you're beginning to see that I've had to embrace an interdisciplinary understanding of operations management, of finance, CSR, innovation, uh, HRM, which I was familiar with, of course, before that, but a whole range of subjects to get to grip, to answer this leadership for what question? You have to take an interdisciplinary view. So to make a point in the finance area, there is there is a U.S. government group, I don't know what you'd call it in the U.S., that's exploring potentially changing how the balance sheet balances. Mm. They're beginning to consider intangible assets, mainly because most of what creates the uh, market cap that uh, we're buying these shares at most now, the majority are intangible assets, while the balance sheet captures the tangible. So we are misreading what we are buying because we don't understand intangible assets. The biggest, well, there's two big intangible assets. I feel like a class here. Scott, what are the biggest two <laughs> intangible assets a business has got? 
Yes, sir. Don't you give me this pause and I'll look it up and then edit it back. Give me the answer now. What are the two biggest intangible assets a company's got? Oh, man, you're, you, are, you are treating me like I'm in class right now. You've got to see his face, everybody. He's, uh, he's, he's in meltdown here. It's summertime, Steve. You're making me think. <laughs> Let me help you. Yes, sir. <laughs> Reputation. Okay. Somewhere between a 30 to 40% of the value, and I, I know this well, our FTSE 100, because I study it, 30 to 40% of the value of the shares is reputational value, reputational capital. Imagine that, 30 to 40%. And the other one is people. Human resources. The tangible asset of all that human capital, all lying there, either purposefully engaged High ingenuity, high energy, creativity, innovation, quality, customer service, excellence, all beavering away to produce maximum customer value, business value, shareholder value, or they're sitting around wondering and waiting for the manager, the next leader to come along and tell us what to do. Yes. So there are two extremes, but if where leadership needs to go, and it will go as soon as human capital goes onto the balance sheet and as soon as reputational capital goes on the balance sheet and we are not far away from it we will see a revolution in leadership because people the kpis of leaders will now be judged on have you enhanced human capital of the team you look after yeah as a result of your yearly performance is our human capital on the balance sheet increased or decreased now if it's decreased what are you doing why aren't we taking some of your bonus or salary away from you because you've reduced the value of the business by your leadership activities and you can see can you just imagine scott how the forensic examination then of everyday leadership practice back to your deliberate practice the sand pits the need to find a practice field because people will be crying out now the, their bonuses are hanging by a thread because we've lost two people over this year. We've lost that capital. It's gone. People are disillusioned. We're not seeing innovation and creativity, which is part of the human capital. And people are be examining this and saying, you're just not a good leader. You're not maximizing human capital. Get out. Yeah. Get somebody in here who can maximize human capital. So the world is going to change. The world will change when those mechanisms of the balance sheet. In a sense, a good colleague of mine, Anthony Hesketh, he wrote a chapter in – did I mention that Good Dividends book? Anyway, he wrote a chapter in that book, um, and he said, we may be getting close to the balance sheet not balancing. Hmm. Posing that rather reflective question, what happens when the balance sheet doesn't balance? Yeah. Because tangibles are no longer the dominant game in town, and intangibles are taking over the world. Now – the notion of purpose connects to this intangible asset. And the argument we make in the Good Dividends book is that how do you maximize your positive social impact development, what we call planet and community dividend, that it creates value back into the rest of the business. And therefore, we hope that in the future, organizations will pursue how they become very savvy at me measuring their investment in positive social impact in terms of its return, dividend, back into the business. I promise never to mention that book again for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> I'll put it in the show notes so people can link to it. But it's a, it's a great way to think about it. I mean, it, it, again, it feels like focusing on returns is an important piece of the conversation, of course, and there's value there. But I think too many leaders become myopic and that becomes the only thing we're focused on or boards become myopic and that's the only thing we're focused on. And to your point, it's it's in many cases not sustainable. We're, we're, if, if you look at some of the numbers around Gallup, and I'll put some of these articles in the show notes as well. But if you look at some of their research about engagement, it's really it's really sad. If you look at, if you look at at least the corporate America, the engagement levels are are horrific and scary. And so I think you're exactly right. Broadening out and focusing on 
multiple stakeholders, it, it's just good business. It is. Firms of endearment, that I forget the, the companies that they highlighted, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes as well. And those those companies were were not myopic. They were focused on some of what you're speaking to, and their their results were wonderful. Now, of course, it's always dangerous to to name names, right? If you go back to built to last or good to great, but these organizations were were doing very very well, outperforming on any number of different metrics. So I love how you're thinking. What, as you've spoken with people in the corporate community, how are they receiving your message? I imagine academics fairly quickly can get behind what you're saying. Is that an accurate assumption? Uh, you really beautifully summarized the territory, but in the wrong way. It's the opposite. Academics, oh, this doesn't work because they're particular experts in their little discipline. As opposed to seeing an inter- interdisciplinary argument, they'll give me sets of reasons why that wouldn't work. Okay. While when I take it to the corporate world, which is where most of my time is, what well, they start skeptical because they've heard all this so many times. It's another CSR, beat that drum. What are you going to do for society? And so my opening line, and I use it using the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDG, and I give an example. There was, I gave a talk, and this chap called Luke Freeman, uh, he runs his own business, 50 million turnover. That's sterling. That must be $70 million business turnover. And so he runs this business, and he was at a talk I was doing, and he came up to me, and so now this has become my opening line. And he said, Steve, if I've got this argument right you're saying about the good dividend, it's not what I should do for the sustainable development goals or what my business should do for the sustainable development goals. I mean, I'm, and he said he went on then say, I've heard this so many times People wagging their finger at us, saying your responsibility is to society and you've got to do more. Well, the weight of responsibility these people have is enormous in itself. And just another finger wagging, it doesn't help anything. And he said, so what I've got from your conversation, so it's not what my business should do for the SDGs. It's how, by engaging with the SDGs, can that enhance value of my business? Yes. So I open with that line to move the skepticism of the corporate world that they've heard it all before and understandably to a very different space, which is capitalism working with capitalism, as we said earlier. It's how can I maximize, hence using deliberately the words good dividends. Yes. Using a language that they value because they've got a fiduciary duty, a legal duty to maximize shareholder return. So I can't get into philanthropic gifting unless I've got a business case that this adds value. So then let's unpack a business model that shows the relationship, the complementarity of positive social impact with a shareholder return. And once I've framed it in that way, and it's taken a journey of about a year and a half, I think, to get it better than uh, when I started, for sure, people do buy it and I've got a group, I've got a series of different programs we're now doing in the UK for the government um, to see if we can roll this out. One's called Made Smarter. It's in digitalization space and productivity. But we've wrapped the good dividends model around it all. And um, another one's called Business Basics, and we've got another cohort elsewhere. So we've got now quite a growing constituent of businesses who are realizing or pursuing the realization of good dividends. And what they're actually doing is pursuing the realization of purpose. And in my experience, out of all of this, the most difficult part of business leadership is getting their heads around purpose. Say more about that. And then we're going to wind down. We've been going for about 40 minutes, Steve. But, oh, but talk, talk, about, talk about purpose, if you would, and, and, and what you're seeing. Because you, you communicated it beautifully with Unilever, correct? Yeah, well, that's kind of you. So, so that's exactly what Unilever have got, is absolutely explicit purpose. Yes. But it takes a journey. I read a paper back in 2011 with uh, Brad Jackson and Merv Conroy, Leadership Has Purpose. Mm. And what we were doing was seeking to foreground purpose because it hadn't been then. I had much attention in, in the scholarly world, in the leadership field. And 
in our earlier research that formed the paper, we discovered that leaders struggle to articulate what it might be other than increasing shareholder return. And that isn't purpose. That's not a societal purpose. That's not a worthy purpose. It doesn't galvanize people to jump out of bed and get excited. <laughs> well, it does if maybe you're the shareholder and you're getting the benefit from it, but most people it doesn't. And also what we discovered was leaders deeply struggle to be able to not just articulate what it might be, but communicate it to a bunch of people who've never heard this sort of thing before. And they're thinking, why have we got a nutter explaining a sort of Martin Luther King moment? Um, I have a dream or one day I can see our business being able to save lives of many, many other thousands of people. It's just a weird concept of a conversation. So they don't know what it is. They struggle to be able to articulate it. And then the flip side of that, the followers do not expect it. They're not demanding it. It's not part of everyday work is to have meaningful activity here or a clear sense of purpose and how we enhance society. We just come to work, you tell us what to do, and we go home and we live out purposeful lives elsewhere. And we give off our best to our communities and our charities outside the business because that's the deal. Yeah. So because it's not demanded, they're not doing it. And because they feel deeply uncomfortable, they never got into the space of exploring how to do this. And so the, the most difficult part I've found in developing uh, responsible leadership and the pursuance of purpose and meaningful work is how to develop a tool set that allows leaders to start thinking that through. Yes. In big part, I'm beginning, because of the sheer weight of that difficulty, I'm beginning to, I think, shift my attention away, not away from responsible leadership. It's the undergirding of all. It's, it's the foundation. But beginning to offer the notion of purpose-led leadership hmm. uh, because it's that significant. It's that great difficulty to get into that space. So what does purpose-led leadership look like? And that's that's probably my next five years work before I pick up my P45. We get P45. When they lay you off here, we get a P45 form, which means – Leave our premises, never darken the door, never return. What do you have in the States instead of a P45? They, they, they won't say that to you, though. They'll, they'll be inviting you back because of the world-renowned work that you've done. You're very kind and generous. Very <laughs> but anyway, uh, five years more work around that space. And hopefully we'll we'll make a difference. There's a group of us. There's about how many now? There must be about 13 of us around in the Good Dividends group, and there's five, six universities around the world working on this. Um, it's all covert and behind closed doors, but we're all beavering away. They're all part of the book. Did I mention? The, I did mention the book. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've got to get me onto my downloads and books, and I've got it listed down here. You know, you've got to ask me. <laughs> oh, that's great. So we are at that spot. Steve, thank you for, for the conversation. I think you've broadened all of our perspectives, and I have a lot to reflect on, that's for sure. And as you know, we always kind of close out. I was going to switch it up on you. I'm, I'm wondering if I can do that. The first 10 or 12 episodes, I asked the same questions, and I'd like to switch that up. Are you game for me switching it up? It's a, it, they're, they're, they're easy questions to answer. I'm good. I'm good. You go for it, although I've got my nicely prepared list here. Okay. Well, you can weave them in. You can weave them in if you want to. So. What is the leadership book or book that you've applied to the context of leadership that has transformed how you think about the topic most? Oh, good question. I would say two books, both very readable. One may be very obvious, Responsible Leadership by Thomas Mark and Nicola Pless back 2006. That got me deeply into this space. Second, that I think is the best written leadership text is the Brad Jackson and Ken Parry, a short, fairly interesting, fairly cheaply priced book, because it's two authors, great scholars, who write without being censored, not worrying, no one, not someone looking over their shoulder, and they express their opinions. They're so knowledgeable, uh, so widely read, and they synthesize the field, and it's very engaging and powerful. But it's a book that's placed out there for 
readership across MBAs, undergrads, practitioners, to be able to do that and be scholarly and reach out. Absolutely fantastic. It's an accomplishment, that's for sure. How about how about a couple articles that is tra- that have transformed how you think about this topic of leadership? I was struck, deeply struck by an article. Now the authors escape me. One of them sounds like an American golfer back in the 70s. Trevino, that's it. You're still thinking of me. Uh, <laughs> Trevino and Brown. And what they did was looked at, and this struck again back in the, uh, about 10, day, 10 years ago, a decade ago. And I was sort of thinking, and it was all fermenting around my head about this stuff, and that we must do something, and, and the moral outrage issue. And, it's, and they demonstrated, wonderful bit of research, how the most prevalent ethical leadership role models are in your very earliest years of supervisory. And as you proceed through an organization, at increasingly higher levels, you have the absence of ethical role models. Hmm. And that just struck me as something going on, the socialization that moves us from being very moral very clear sense of moral impulse to becoming morally disengaged and morally numb as we travel our journeys in organizations. And uh, so I've read a whole set of other related work around that, but just that, that fired me into my goodness. And there's a chap called Archie Carroll, big, huge in business ethics, made the point that most management is amoral. So it's not immoral, I, you know, the difference between right and wrong is known when you choose to do wrong and moral being, you know, the right and wrong and you choose to do right. Amoral is ethics has got nothing to do with business. Hmm. And when you think about purpose, worthy purpose, the notion of telos is deeply rooted to Aristotle's work on virtue ethics. So to me, an organization that actually is amoral, that ethics has got nothing to do with business. Hmm. is such a scary, scary thought. Yes, yes. Here's perhaps the most important question. What should people listen to? What musical artists should they listen to while they're consuming these articles? Assuming they like to listen to music when they read, what would you suggest would best go with? Okay, so I've, I've, as you know well, that's why you set me up here, so I am a bit of a prog person, progressive music, progressive rock, and I have gone back and gone back a long way. And there's a lovely set of podcasts, what are they called podcasts, whatever they are called on, on YouTube when people collate all their music. What is it called? Is that a podcast? I don't know. Say more about what it is. Okay. And so I would recommend, so less about, I mean, I have looked at all sorts, you know, recent well, I've gone back to Caravan and all sorts of stuff like that. But go to Prog Doc. Prog Doc. Okay. And, and he, fin- he always signs off this chap, whoever's putting it together, all for one and one from the vine. Where's that from, Scott? All for one and one from the vine. I don't know that one. Genesis, Wind and Wuthering. Ah. Because you started, when we started, folks, if anybody's still listening, there's probably nobody now that's still listening. <laughs> Um, it's just you and I again. It was like that in the pub, if you remember. Just you and I. We, we'll, we'll get the statistics. We'll get the. We'll, we'll know where they dropped off, though. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's. <laughs> don't tell me. And uh, so before we started this whole uh, talk, folks listening in, uh, he was playing "Supper's Ready" just for me. So when we, I clocked. I didn't know how to get in. First of all, uh, he's not admitting this. He's too gracious. So I wasted five ten minutes trying to get to this point. Anyway, when I burst in on Scott, he was playing Supper's Ready, uh, which is my all-time favorite song. So prog rock, and it has this collection, Endless. And I keep hearing you scribbling down, oh, that band, I've never heard of that band. Oh, that's fantastic, and so on and so forth. So go to prog rock, uh, all for one and one for the vine. Okay, wonderful. Uh, Steve Kempster, laughter, positivity, a prolific madman when it comes to the work that you're doing. Uh, but but your work is exemplifies exactly what it is you're studying. Uh, it's purpose-driven. And we can tell that you have an incredible passion for that work. And thank you for doing that work. And I can, I'm excited to continue to consume and to learn from uh, how you're thinking about uh, some of these 
critical topics. And I love the framing of, of leader follower to leader stakeholders. I have a lot to think about. So thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. But I would say just try to sign off. We need to flip this around because we're all talking about flipping the classroom and all that, whatever that means. And who's, who's going to do you on deliberate practice? Because that's outstanding work and, and we need a podcast on it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. You know, Kay Anders Erickson just passed away, unfortunately. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Very he, he did. He did incredible work, incredible work. And, and it's been fun to experiment with and explore. That's for sure. Mate, it's been uh, it's been a great uh, time chatting. Uh, you must stay well, and you and your family keep safe. And uh, we'll get through this crazy times. And I'll be thinking about you and your family as well, sir. Take care. Be well. Cheers. As you can see, uh, Steve Kempster is just a great guy. He's a, he's a great human being. He's a great thinker. And I left our conversation with some quotes in mind. And I've shared a lot of these in the, in the show notes. But he said that you can use capitalism to change capitalism. And then he said, but the biggest way forward for capitalism to change, it's leadership, which is the most powerful mechanism on the planet for social change. Uh, he also says that it's corporates that have the scope to rescue humanity. Wow. What a big statement. And I have been reflecting on that statement a lot. It's corporates that have the scope to rescue humanity. And he also discussed that the greatest tangible asset of all that human capital oftentimes goes untapped. I'm reminded of, of one of my favorite articles by Kathy Allen. If you're not familiar with, with the work of Kathy Allen, please visit episode two of Phronesis. Uh, she, like Steve, is thinking in a very systemic way about this whole conversation of leadership. And then I really loved this statement, and I think it's so true. He said, in my experience, out of all of this, the most difficult part of business leadership is getting our heads around purpose. And if we can get our heads around purpose and we can get our heads around the notion that it's not just the fiscal bottom line, that there's multiple bottom lines, that there's multiple balance sheets, I think we can change the world. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.